This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Welcome to Tax Tuesday. Hopefully you're uh, popping in there. I don't know if I can see whether people are flowing in or not. Zoom is being Zoomy today. So if you're looking for Tax Tuesday, you're in the right spot. We're trying to bring tax knowledge to the masses. My name's Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And so I was distracted by the thing crawling across the screen. What's, what's crawling over there? Something crawling? Yeah, we're we're not the best at computers here. So Jeff's, Jeff's trying to show me a thing or two. And uh, Zoom likes to just put things up there. So anyway, let's dive in, right? You're here for taxes, not for lessons on Zoom etiquette. All right, so let's talk about this real quick. If you have questions today, put it in the Q&A. Questions today, put it in the Q&A. That actually rhymes. Nice. And uh, we have Dutch, Elliot, Jared, Tricia, Amanda, Patty, Matt. Like we have a bunch of tax attorneys and accountants on who will answer your questions for you. So if you have any year end stuff, if you just have, boy, this is bugging me. I just wanted to know the answer. Throw it in there in the Q and A. We start asking questions like, "Hey, my 1040 is this, that, and the other. What's you know, blah 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 strategy, this, that, and the other." We're probably going to ask you to become a platinum client or to become a tax client. You could email in questions, general questions, to TaxTuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. We grab 10 to 15 of those every event, and we go through and we read them and answer them, and then answer all your questions. If you have comments, feel free to put them in chat. In fact, one of the favorite things we like to do here is say, where, what city and state are you sitting in? And don't say intoxicated in Seattle. What city and state you are in, put it into chat so we know where everybody's sitting. It's always fun to see. So there's Claremont, Florida, Kansas City, Kansas, Odessa, Florida, Osteen, Florida, Fort Collins, Colorado, Soaking in Seattle, Springfield, Eastern PA. Ooh, now they're flying by Heath, Hyattsville, Houston, Wisconsin, California, Massachusetts. What cheer, Iowa? Didn't know there was a what cheer. Oh my gosh. Now it's doing weird things up on top. Uh, New Jersey, Pompano Beach, Florida. I bet you it's nice. Tulsa, Oklahoma, Maple Lake, Minnesota. I have not seen a Hawaii. Anybody out there in Hawaii, Salt Lake City, Utah? Usually we have like all time zones covered. Yep. Do we have any? There's Wichita, South Florida. I'm not seeing any Hawaii. I'm feeling kind of bad now. There's more Colorado, Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Joe. And uh, hey, Joe, NorCal, Northern California, two of them from there. Yeah, I didn't see any Hawaii, White Plains. So I'm kind of sad here. There's Mark Perry. All right. So now we have Hawaii in the house. All right. Seal Beach, California as well. And Bellevue, Washington, if you want to be tax client, please let me know what will be the cost. Hey, Raj, nice. There's some more Hawaii. I always know that we got them on both, on both coasts. So we have, to, we have to check that out. So anyway, this is supposed to be fast, fun, and educational. We try to get done in an hour, but Jeff is very, very talkative. Talkative Jeff. All right, speaking of talkative, let's go through the questions that we are going to answer. We're not going to answer them yet, but we're going to read them out so you get to see what are the questions. Hopefully one is ringing true with you and you go like, ah, gosh, I really want to hear the answer to that. So you stick around. All of my LLCs are disregarded right now. I'm in the process of setting up one LLC to be taxed as an S or C Corp as management for all my LLCs. What are some of the write-offs by 1231-23 as a corporation? So we'll go over that. Jeff will probably have something to say. You've been a CPA for what, 30, 40 years? 30 years. 30 years. I'm just, I'm just estimating high. Can I 1031 exchange? That's 1031, a long-term rental, single family residence depreciating over 27 and a half years. 
into a you got a, you got a you got somebody gave you a a little what is that called? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Somebody gave you a reaction, whatever that's called. Confetti? Is that confetti? A, a party. Yeah. It's a party thing. Give Jeff a thumbs up if you think that 30 years is good to be a CPA. I don't know how he's done it. There we go. So you get some thumbs up. They're all down here. <laughs> I don't know why Zoom's. We have three screens and it kind of picks ones to do it. I don't see any crying emojis. So apparently they think that's good. All right. Can I 1031 a long-term rental, single family resident, residential depreciating over 27 and a half years into a short-term Airbnb and then perform cost segregation analysis on the new property. Boy, he picked a good topic. How does the this impact depreciation recapture and depreciation schedules going forward? Moving from straight line into accelerated, the goal here is to apply paper losses against W-2 income. Whew, good questions again. How do I write off business startup expenses before the business actually starts making any money? LLC cost, education cost, travel expenses, or business education, business essentials, phone, office, etc. Good questions thus far. Mm-hmm. Elliot always picks these. He's one of our tax attorneys. He's probably on. Yeah, I see Elliot's name. And so we always rate whether he gave us good questions or not. How are you thinking thus far? Uh, so far, so good. But I know he's got some that I have to keep answering no on. So ah, but right. go ahead and give him some. It's a little love. Elliot. Elliot, that's good. All right. If we are flipping a home within six month period, can we do accelerated depreciation on top of the fixing costs, real estate commissions, closing costs, et cetera? Ooh, dealer status question. My husband owns and operates an electrical business. When he finishes his job, he provides a statement due upon receipt. If a client does not pay, is it considered a loss and is it tax deductible? Question mark. Good question. Get that one a lot, actually. Please discuss the pros and cons of borrowing from my life insurance policy to purchase. Uh, to purchase real estate. Is any part of the interest I would pay on this loan tax deductible? Good question. I have a feeling Jeff will answer that because he loves that type of question. How do I offset passive losses other than increasing rents and paying off debt? Do I partner with someone who is generating a lot of passive income by a property that has generated a lot of income for the year? What can I do before the end of the year so I can use it for this year's taxes? Good question again. I'm a licensed contractor working full-time in my 100% owned construction company. I am a salaried employee, so I do not have a punch card to track my work hours. I am a real estate professional for tax, or am I a real estate professional for tax purposes? So we'll dive into that one too. Can I create a 401k for my real estate investment business? Does it cause problems if my salary job provides me with a 401k? Is there an age limit for hiring our kids to work in our family business? We have a six-year-old and a 13-year-old. Love that question. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's thinking ahead, like way ahead, do that for a few years. Your kids are going to be millionaires if, if you do it right. So we'll, we'll show you that way. All right. Already a ton of questions already going into the Q&A. So you guys are already making our folks work. So thanks again to Dutch, Elliot, Jared, Tricia, Amanda, Patty, probably missing somebody, but there's a bunch of folks. Matthew, he's on there too. Hey, if you like questions and answers and you just want to learn more about real estate tax, asset protection, even investing, and if you want to learn about welding, I had Tyler Sassy on really? talking about how much you make as a welder. <laughs> it's pretty cool. He's one of our clients. He's a really great guy. Uh, yeah, he's a, yeah, some of you guys know who Tyler is. He's a rock star. Like He did a really good job. So go to my YouTube channel, subscribe, like all the stuff, or just go watch videos for that matter. And if you're on YouTube, 
watching this right now. Make sure. See, Tyler's that guy over there in the corner. Why you should learn to weld. I just decided that everybody should learn to weld. But those guys do really, really well. And we need people in the trades. And not saying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Somebody says, I love to weld. If you like welding, put it in the chat. I like welding. And other people should learn to weld too. So even if it's not your career, it still sounds like fun. I know it's hard work, but you get paid a lot. These guys are making about $100,000 a year. And uh, he has a, pr a school. They'll even cover the, the 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 cost of doing the school. They have ways to do that where you work it off later. It's actually really cool. See, I want to look. See, all these people, go to my YouTube channel. See, that's my shameless pitch. If you want to learn how to save your money, if you want to learn how to protect your money, keep it away from the lawyers, Snoops, and Uncle Sam, then by all means, come to our free real estate tax and asset protection workshop. The virtual workshops are 100% free. They're one days. Let's see. Looks like we have some coming up on the 16th, the 21st, and the 27th. And uh, we have a four-day event coming up this week, actually, like in a couple of days yep. here in Vegas, where we're going to have a whole hundreds of people here in Vegas. We're going to be hanging out, going over an infinity day on investing, and then three days on tax and asset protection. So if you really like this, it's fun. Somebody says, I taught welding in 1969 in Cleveland, Ohio. You'd like Tyler. He, uh, really cool dude. He dropped out of high school at 16. Like, I'm learning all this stuff while I'm interviewing him. But, you know, ended up building a very successful school. Has done really well financially for himself. But what's more important is he's making America a better country. And he's teaching people how to be good workers and teaching them a skill that nobody can take away from. All right. So there's the YouTube stuff. If you want to come to YouTube, Clint has a great channel as well. My partner, Clint, uh, if you've, Clint and Michael are my partners, but Clint has a really good asset protection YouTube. Michael, we were just trying to get him. So I'd keep trying to push him like, Michael, have a YouTube channel. But he's, he's good enough to let Clint and I do it. We're, we're weird. We love it. All right, let's do the first question, Jeff. All of my LLCs are disregarded right now. And I'm in the process of setting up one LLC to be taxed as an SRC Corp as management for all my other LLCs. What are some of the write-offs that I get before 1231-23? Well, one thing we need to put out there is you can't, normally can't start writing off stuff that happened before you had your entity. Now, there is the exception for certain startup expenses. You don't have as many to choose from in an S-Corp as you would a C-Corp. Mm-hmm. And there's organizational expenses. So like the cost of setting up the S corporation is an organizational expense that, that will be, you'll Let, be able to write that off. Let's hit some basic real quick. Okay. When you see LLC and you hear disregarded and you see LLC taxed as a SRC corp, I just want to make cl clear, the IRS doesn't know what an LLC is. They go like this. I don't know what you got. Tell me what you got. Tell me what mm -hmm. you got. And then you say, oh, it's just me as disregarded or, oh, it's a partnership. Or, oh, it's an S-Corp. Or, oh, it's a C-Corp. You do this on an SS4. And if you do an S-Corp, it's 2553. But you're just letting the IRS know what it is because they don't recognize an LLC. So when I see disregarded LLCs, that tells me somebody is probably doing real estate and they probably want to have it one LLC that is taxed as an S or a C-Corp to collect rents and to gather expenses. That's what it's telling me when I see this. You agree? Yeah. All right. So now we have these LLCs that are doing real estate, you get deductions on your ordinary and necessary business expenses on those. Yep. So it's not like you lost out, but now we set up an S or a C Corp before the end of the year. Does it trigger anything special that I get to write off? And the answer is probably not, right? There's, right. there's $5,000 for startup expenses, $5,000 for organizational expenses that you can grab, lickety split and reimburse yourself and write off. 
but it has to have income yes. to really get a benefit out of that. And I, I'm not sure if you agree with this, but I'm not crazy about having an S-Corp as a management company, especially if it's managing real estate, because then any management fees just create passive losses, most likely, and ordinary income at the same time, which both end up back on your 1040 mm-hmm. with an S-Corporation. So that's why I prefer the C-Corporation. Like I said earlier, there's actually more deductible items. What about double taxation? My accountant has a heart attack and immediately starts saying, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you're so dumb. You set up a C-Corp. It's double tax. What do you say to those people? There are so many things you can do. I mean, there's times where dividends are applicable. You can pay a salary out of that S-Corp or C-Corporation so you don't get hit with double taxation. Mm-hmm. But let's be real. 80% of C-Corps zero out at least. Yeah. And that's, that. Uh, thank you. That was the other thing I was going to say is you can make your management fees pretty close to whatever it is you're reimbursing and the C-Corp never makes hardly any money. And then what Jeff said about C-Corps get more deductions, C-Corps, assuming you don't have another company that's a C-Corp with a bunch of employees, right? You can't, mm-hmm. we have discrimination rules, but assuming that this is just you and it's, hey, this is my family and I have a W-2 job or something, I can write off 100% of my medical, dental, vision expenses for myself, my family, anybody who's a dependent of me, including my parents, if they're dependents, I can write off all of their medical. And like we've seen, what, $25,000, $30,000 medical expenses yep. reimbursed out of a C-Corp, 100% deductible to the C-Corp. You don't have to report it as an individual. It's a under an accountable plan. Plus, you can do administrative offices and get another five, dollars $6,000 a year tax-free. Plus, you can do 2ADA, which is this Augusta rule. If you've never heard of it, stick around. We, we go over this in a lot of our courses. There's a whole bunch of different deductions that are kind of sneaky deductions that are available to corporations that are not available to you and me. And it's because when you have an S or a C corp from a tax perspective, so it could be an LLC tax as an S corp, LLC tax as a C corp, you can be an employee, which means you can have an accountable plan. And that sounds like Greek to you. It just means your company can treat you just like if you were working for Boeing or something else, they can reimburse all these expenses and cover these things for you. The company gets to write it off. You don't have to report it as income. So yeah, if you have an S corporation as a management company, I would say it's highly likely that you're going to have more personal income than if you had a C corp managing your company, your, yeah. your your entities. Fair enough. And then what Jeff said about the C corps is if they do show profit, they're taxed at 21%. And if they pay that profit out to you, you pay long-term capital gains rates on it. It's called a qualified dividend. So yep. it could be at zero anyway. So everybody always says, oh, you know, double tax. Realistically, it's not so bad a thing anymore since the Tax Cut and Jobs Act came out. It used to be really bad when dividends were ordinary income and the corporate rate could be as high as 39%. You're getting nuked at that point. And that's where most accountants got trained. It's like, oh, they're bad. They didn't actually do the math. When you do the math, it's not that bad anymore. And Jeff also said something really smart, which is you can just pay yourself a salary. Like worst case scenario, you're sitting there on the C-Corp and you're running. You don't have to work for free. You can pay yourself a salary and get it out. So you're no worse off. You know, so yep. if you're making ordinary income and you'd have paid tax at ordinary income rates here, we can still get it back out to you. Or if you're really scared of that C-Corp, do an S-Corp, quit worrying about it. Don't don't stress yourself out. Let yourself sleep at night, right? Right. Whatever works for you, but it's got to be your decision. You shouldn't just default to your accountant's decision. Anything else on that, sir? No, like you said, a lot of the old CPAs are stuck on C-Corps are bad, especially the smaller ones. C-Corp bad. Because they don't want to learn how to use them. No offense to, uh, there's probably some CPAs out there that I just pissed off. I'm sorry. 
we we learned certain things even in lawyering you learn certain things like hey in order to be a c corp you have to meet all these different tests and then they do the check the box regs and makes it a moot point so we all learned under one system and then the congress changed it so i, I still think that so somebody says at any point does an s corp make more sense than a c corp absolutely when you need to live off the money and you're going to be taking it out anyway then it it we can avoid employment taxes on about two thirds of that money, Horace, if, if, if we're taking it out. So there's lots of reasons, oops, I'll go back to this question. There's lots of reasons why you, you might do an S corp versus a C corp. And sometimes you do both. Like there's nothing that says, I can't have family management company over here, consulting, dental practice, medical, whatever the other business is, construction company, electric, electrical contractor, whatever as an S, real estate, mm -hmm. Maybe I'm a realtor. Maybe I'm just have a management company that I'm, you know, doing certain activities and I have a C corp that's managing stock accounts or something else. I could actually have both. So yes, you can have the best of both worlds and you can have your cake and eat it too. Thinking about cake. Cake. Wait. Darn it. Right. Sometimes I'm not quick on the draw there. All right. Next question. Can I 1031 a long-term rental, single-family residential depreciation over 27 and a half years into a short-term Airbnb and then perform cost segregation analysis on the new property? How does this impact depreciation recapture and depreciation schedules going forward, moving from straight line to accelerated? The goal here is to apply paper losses against W-2 income. Jeff Rowe. A uh, couple things here. Yes, you can do this. There's a timing issue here that this long-term rental really can't extend into the next year because then you taint your whole short-term rental. Good point. So a short-term rental, seven days or less. Yes. And you take the total number of people that you rented to or, you know, what do mm -hmm. you call it? Hosted, uh, rented to. It's still short-term rental. But all of our guests, and you take the number of days it was actually rented and divide the number of people into that, and that will give you your average days per unique rental. If it's seven days or less, it is not passive rental activity. It is a trade or business. It's, you're an electrician, you're a pizza shop, you are a, what fill in the blank, you're an active business. So what Jeff just said is, hey, if I'm a long-term rental and in the middle of the year, I go into an Airbnb, I have to look at the whole year for both those properties. Yep. Correct? So if you're still long-term through January, is it still possible? Yes, but it makes it all that much more difficult to get that seven-day average. Now, uh, depreciation recapture, the nice thing about 1031 is depreciation recapture is also deferred along with all the other gains. Mm -hmm. So, uh, they, but, but what if I, and what they're talking about is when they do cost segregation, mm -hmm. is ordinarily on a property, long-term rental is 27 and a half years. Airbnb technically is 39 years. Yep. And that's called straight line. Hey, I'm just divvying it up over that period of time. When I go in and cost seg a property, I'm walking in there going, hey, that carpeting is five-year property. Hey, those cabinets are five-year property. The appliances might be five years. That deck outside is 15-year property. Those, those shrubs and those flowers we planted, that's 15-year. Hey, that new driveway, that's 15-year property. And then I can accelerate that. Yep. And like this year in 2023, you can accelerate 80% of whatever that dollar amount is. I can write off right now, the year that I decide to do this, the, the cost segregation. Now, here's the weird thing. Because you had a long-term rental and you 1031, we have to go back to the year that I believe that that one is put into service to determine what's the amount that we would get it for our uh, accelerated depreciation because that property would be put into service at some point. 
I believe that's correct, but I'm, I, you know, verify it's going to be whatever year that property was put in service. I don't think we can sneak around that fact, but it might be a hundred percent. Like if, Hey, I've had this property since 2018 and I 1031 it into a new Airbnb, which is a great idea, by the way, like, you know, you always want the best use of your dollars and I don't want to incur a tax. Your basis is the amount of the first property. So when you're doing your cost seg, it's still based off of these numbers over yep. here, my depreciable basis minus land, right? You look at the, just the improvement, the box that you put on that property, plus any improvements. Now, another issue with uh, this is, let's say I originally purchased this property for $200,000. I've had it for a while. It's now worth the basis. I'm sorry. The basis is now about $100,000. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if I sold the property for $500,000. The basis in my replacement property is still $100,000. Yep. It's whatever that was minus the, re- the uh, depreciation. Correct. Like, you may be better off. Sometimes when you do these numbers, it sounds weird, but if you're going to do accelerated depreciation, you may want to consider just selling it. We'd have to look and see if you have, you know, you might have passive losses that are from other properties that, or better yet, you might have lost carry for that you didn't realize get released when you sell. So you may not have a big tax hit anyway, but depending on the value of this property, you may be surprised that you're like, it's actually called a lazy man's 1031. You might be better off selling it and not 1031 it. You may be better off saying, hey, you know what? I want the higher basis and I want to accelerate depreciation. And by the way, we can get those numbers for you before you sell, right? So you could decide, do I want to do a 1031? You could always pull out of the 1031. Even after you sell, you still have these requirements. You could just say, nix it, right? Give me the money. Boom. Everything's taxable now. Yeah. Because I might be perfectly okay with paying the, the capital gains on the sale because by putting that half a million towards a new property, I have a lot more depreciation to work with. And then the last line here, the goal is to apply paper losses against W-2. You're getting a tax benefit if you're doing Airbnb and you materially participate. Mm -hmm. Material participation, seven tests, really only three that we pay attention to, which is either you're doing all the activity, hey, I self-manage it, or I have other people working on it uh, that do substantial activities but I do a hundred hours between myself and my spouse. You add both times and nobody spent more time. No other individual spent more time. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is 500 hours between you and a spouse. But on this one, cause it's Airbnb, it would be only on your Airbnb property. If you're yep. doing, Hey, I want to be a real estate pro. We would actually structure this slightly differently. You'd probably sell the long-term rental. You'd get the, we'd, we'd want to lease that new purchase to a, an SRC corp or an LLC taxes, an SRC corp that will be the host so that we can keep it long. If we're going to aggregate it with our other rental properties, if you just want to do the Airbnb and you're going to self-manage this and you just want to do it for one year or two years, and you're just trying to unlock the tax benefit, then we wouldn't do that. We would, we, then we, you know, again, it's, there's a little bit of convolution here, but people that know this stuff, they'll be able to figure it out. Look at a split. Like if you looked at us, it would take us five minutes to figure out which is the better way. And another thing Toby reminded me of is if that long-term rental has suspended passive losses under it, mm-hmm. I, I'm probably more likely to sell it because doing a 1031 does not release those passive losses. And now you're stuck and carrying them forward. Right. So I have to keep carrying them forward. And But if I sell the property, I can release them, which will go against that W-2 income. Yeah. And then I see like uh, Dina put in there in a chat and I saw Patty's responding. You would want to talk to a tax person. I know that there's 1031s that 
we already know what that rule is. We would just look and say, hey, based on your tax return, what's your loss carry forward? We'll see if they're associated with that property. We'd look at the depreciation schedule and then we'd look at the target property and see what, what we could unlock there with the cost seg. We work with cost seg authority. Eric Oliver over there is absolutely aces. We would run through the analysis to see how much we could unlock. And then we could tell you, here's your gain that you would have if, if you don't 1031. Here's it is if you 1031, which one's better for you? And it'll be looking at your total circumstance. One of our accountants could do that. I would say, I want to talk to a tax advisor. Is it tax analyst or tax advisor? Tax advisor. Tax advisor. You say, I want to talk to you're, yeah, I want to talk to a tax person. You're the CPA. Jeff's the CPA. I'm just a tax attorney. And frankly, some days that's even questionable. All right. What do we got? Another one. Wait, 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 wait. Hey, I hear, I don't touch, darn it. It's not giving me coin. Yeah. There's money out of this. So yes. do the analysis. Do the analysis. <laughs> I just suck at this. <laughs> uh, uh, Toby. <laughs> All right. How do I write off business startup expenses before the business actually starts making any money? LLC costs, education costs, travel expenses for business education, business essentials like phone, office, et cetera. What say you, Jeff Rowe? Those expenses are tallied up and they are, there's actually two categories. There's the organization expenses for setting up the entity uh, and their startup expenses, and they both have a $5,000 automatic expense line. Yes. And you have education that would lop into that. So let's go through these. LLC cost, is that startup or organization? Organization. Education cost, is that startup or organization? That, that is a startup. Travel expense for the business education? Startup. Business essentials like phone, office, et cetera? Uh, startup. There you go. You can write off up to $5,000 of, of startup expenses, up to $5,000 of organizational expenses, boom, immediately. If you go above that, you get to amortize them. Over 15 years. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Over 15 years, you get to write them off. It's like a slow, painful process, but eventually you'll write them off. Now, if you have substantial education expenses, you're probably going to want a C-Corp. That's the only place we can deduct those. Yes. We want to see what you're doing. We will make sure that we are treating it the best we can. Where can we find a list of write-offs in their category? <laughs> You talk to Jeff. Now there's, uh, we, we, I think we have a few of a bunch of different types of expenses, but it depends. It depends on what you're doing. It's just one of those weird things. Like I wish that there was a simple answer. There's not. It's section 162 of the internal revenue code. It's reasonable and necessary for the type of business you're in. Cut reasonable, customary, and necessary, right? I guess we could pull Amazon's chart of accounts. And Custom, ordinary, reasonable, necessary. Yes. Yes. So you're just trying to write things up. You can, yeah, grab a chart of accounts of a big company and look at what they're using. And they all use different charts of accounts, by the way. And kind of look at it this way. I mean, what the definition you gave is, is this really a business expense? Am I spending money for the business or mm -hmm. yeah. did, did I just feel like I needed a new lawnmower? Yeah, and get this. So if you have one of these things, a cell phone, it's my wife. <laughs> now she's gone. There she is. People are like, what do you got on your phone? It's my beautiful wife, Sandra. So if I have one of these and I want to write it off and I am a sole proprietor, I'm in a partnership, I can only write off the business expense with this. Mm -hmm. Who the heck tracks their phone? Like, here's my business phone. Here's my, like, maybe you get a different phone for your business, right? It's just annoying. If I am an employee of an organization, so I have an S corp or a C corp and I work for it, my employer can reimburse me a hundred percent of this. Yep. So if I work for Jeff's CPA firm, 
and I'm like, hey, I use this phone to benefit, you know, I do as part of my duties. Jeff could reimburse me 100% of not just the data and the cell, also the phone itself, 100%. And the trick question is, where do I report it? I don't. I don't have to. It's no different than if your employer said, hey, on the way in the office, pick up some pizzas and I'll reimburse you. The employer is going to write off the pizza when they write you a check or hand you cash Mm -hmm. to reimburse you. You don't have to put it anywhere. There's no there's no line item on your 1040 that says reimbursed expenses doesn't exist. So you're just you're good. Yeah. Somebody says you can look at forms on the Internet or yeah, the forms are found on the website. So we have some of those where we have a whole list of different things. All you have to ask yourself is, is this the type of expense that would benefit? Like there's all sorts of things. Meals. Hey, I'm meeting with a prospect. Uh, I'm traveling for my business. Hey, I'm going to an event for realtors and I'm a realtor and I'm trying to get continuing education or whatnot. Yeah, that's deductible. Hey, I'm, I'm driving around. How about the mileage? Yep, I can write that off. Hey, I'm, I spend money on paper and a printer and some computers and, and, and I have to get some subscriptions. Yeah, all that's reasonable, ordinary, necessary. Uh, if somebody says the Anderson event, yes, 100% deductible. Uh, how about if I go to a golf course? The IRS is going to say, Probably not because that's not where business really takes place, even though it's where business actually takes place. And they're going to classify it. It used to be you could write off entertainment no more. Yeah, they did away with that. I guess who did away with that? Before everybody, like Tax Cut and Jobs Act, that was the Trump administration. He got rid of the dang golfing and entertainment, except he owns golf courses. Yes. Like, come on. Self-inflicted wound. All right, let's move on. If we are flipping a home within a six-month period, can we do accelerated depreciation on top of fixing costs, real estate commissions, closing costs, et cetera? Ooh. Can you give them what flipping is? Flipping is when I purchase a property with the intent of fixing it up and selling it to somebody else, which makes it inventory. Just like if I bought some apples to sell in my fruit store. That is 100% correct, which means, think about your fruit store. Do you depreciate the apples in your fruit store? No. Their cost of goods sold. So when you buy a house and you're going to sell it, I bought it with the intent to sell it, no matter how long I own it. I was just talking with a former IRS trial attorney on this one, and we were just sitting here chatting, and he's like, nope, 10 years. If if the IRS sees that when you bought it, you were intending to sell it, but it was like the market turned or whatever, and you ended up making it into your rental for 10 years, that is dealer property. You can't depreciate it. You can't do installment sales. You can't do 1031s. Even if you held it more than a year, it does not matter. You are a car dealership with a car in the lot, but that car is a house. So when you buy a house with the intent to sell it, you don't depreciate it. But I've held this house for 10 years. What if I'm renting it out on that, even though I intentionally intended to flip it? No. It doesn't matter. Can't. It's still inventory. That's where they just, and they, there's a number of cases on it. Don't worry. Like it's out there. You can go, it's. It's not what people expect. And then there's so much bunk information on the internet about it. They're always like, yeah, hold it for a year and a day and you're an investor. No, it's the facts and circumstances surrounding the purchase. Mm-hmm. If you bought it with the intent to sell it, you're a dealer. Even if you hold it for 20 years, if you bought it with the intent to hold it, it's still investment property, even if you hold it for two months, because somebody comes in and offers you an outrageous price, which we've seen. So if this is you and you're flipping, we're not doing accelerated depreciation. Besides, you would just recapture at ordinary rate anyway as soon as you sold it. So what it is, is all those expenses get added into your basis. So if I bought a house for $100,000 and I'm going to sell it, uh, let's say I sell it for 200000 and I put $30,000 into it. 
So I add up all my expenses. I have a $100,000 basis. I put $30,000 of improvements. That would give me $70,000 of ordinary income treatment. And uh, I would not do that in your individual name. I'd do that through an S-corp or a C-corp because it would be subject to self-employment tax. And when I say S or C-corp, it, it could be an LLC tax as an S-corp. LLC tax as a C-corp. Do not do these in your name because what it does is it causes confusion. If I am the IRS, I need to know what Jeff is doing. If I see Jeff flipping properties or he's a developer and he develops property and then he has a property that he holds for 20 years, even if it was clear that that was an investment property, I'm the IRS, what do I think Jeff is? Dealer. Yeah, and that's what they do. And the only way they know is they come in and do facts and circumstances, and which means discovery, which means digging into all your documents, which means asking you uncomfortable questions and digging in to see whether they can reclassify that puppy and disallow all the depreciation you took. Disallow. I had a client that uh, bought a property for $4 million, sold it for $7 million under an installment note, the entire $3 million of gain was due year one. The party that they sold it to, this was in uh, 2007, ended up defaulting immediately thereafter. IRS didn't care. They're like, I want my, it was $700,000 of, of tax. I want that money and I want interest and I want penalties. And they went after him. And at the end of the day, it was a loss for him. He could like, he ended up with the property back, but that took two years. And the IRS says, hey, you got to, show you're, you're actually trying to recover. You have to show that it's bad debt before you can write it off. Mm -hmm. All those things, they make you jump through some hoops. Well, it was two and three year stretch. I think it was over three tax years. So they just got bapped and they never even got paid on that sale. So they had a massive tax hit. They ended up with some loss and thank God, you know, we were able to carry it back at that time. Like there's probably now, I don't think we can carry back. No, there's no NOL carry back. Yeah. At that time we could carry back, but it just stinks. It's just woof. Uh, somebody says, how can I write off losses from, by the way, we, I can see the chat and I, I'm always sc scanning for ones that are, that are relevant to a question that we're asking. So they said, Hey, I have losses from a flip. I recently sold a home and took a huge loss, about $20,000 have to take into account rehab, holding costs, realtor commission. How can we absorb the loss in our taxes? Here's the beautiful part. It's an trader business. It's no different than if you ran a pizza shop at a loss mm -hmm. or I was running, you know, a CPA firm at a loss. It's ordinary loss if you materially participated. So if you were the one doing the flip, you could write it off yeah. against your W-2 income, Sonny. So you don't have to worry about it being a capital loss that's restricted. Yeah. In regards to some of these other expenses he mentions, the real estate taxes, commissions, closing costs, those also are not deductible as you would think they would be. They're added to basis. They're added right. to basis, both, yep. both front and back end closing costs. Now you will get to recognize them when you actually sell your flip. But some people, I know you're sitting there going, I'm cash poor. The IRS is asking for money. Why is this? It's because you've been spending it on things that may not be readily deductible right now. It might be something that's going to be in the future. You may not have to pay tax when you sell it, things like that. Something about Supreme Court and tax laws, I don't know. All right, let's keep going. Uh, my husband owns and operates an electrical business. When he finishes his job, he provides a statement due upon receipt. So he, it's an invoice. Please pay me. I was really trying hard not to say that. It's an invoice. Come on. Uh, if a client does not pay, is it considered a loss and is it tax deductible? No, you're on the cash basis, most likely. Even if you're on the accrual basis, it might be a loss. But let's just think of cash basis. Uh, you don't recognize any income until you're actually paid that income. Now. Um, 
I've had people who rent out their their cabins to churches and all for things, and they want to write off the loss of income from those. It's like, no, you, you can write off your normal expenses, all the expenses he did put into that job, mm-hmm. he can write off, but you can't write off a loss for money you never got to start with. Yeah. As a cash basis, Jeff just hit it on the head. As a cash basis taxpayer, you recognize income when you receive it. You don't get a loss unless it's actually something that costs you, like there has to be a deduction. Well, not paying just means I don't recognize the income. So I'm at zero. If it costs me money to do the job, so if it's electrical business and it costs your husband, you know, gas to get over there, some employees to work on things, the materials, hey, I did some wiring and some, you know, and I had some caps and I had a this, that, and the other, maybe have 300, 300 bucks of cost and maybe it was a thousand dollar invoice. Yep. You would get the three hundred dollars your your expenses. You could use those as losses and write it off against your other income. But I never received the thousand bucks. So just because they didn't pay me doesn't mean I get a tax deduction. I just don't have to recognize it as income. And we hear that pretty often that people want to write off their lost time for working on stuff they never were never paid for. And IRS is going to tell you that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. It's tough. Yeah. And I, we get that all the time. And people do this again, like, hey, I donated my time to a charity. Do I get to write it off? No, you can write off your expenses. I think it's like 14 cents a mile or something like that. They have reduced amounts. But if you like you did postage or something, hey, I took a whole bunch of envelopes to mail out to my for my church and I spent 30 bucks on postage. You can write off the postage, but I can't write off the time that I spent on it because you never got paid for it. Now, if you got paid for it, then, well, then you don't have losses, obviously. So. Hope that helps. I know it sucks. And that's why it really hurts when people don't pay their invoices. Now, if you're an accrual-based taxpayer, this could be a slightly different story. You would have the income accrued when he sends the invoice. Correct. But then they didn't pay it. So you'd have to write it off as, as uncollectible invoice and you write yep. it off. You're still at zero. Like you're not, you're not worse off, better off. You're still at zero. That makes it. No, that's exactly right. Phew. I'm like a broken clock. You're right twice a day. They're twice a day. That's about it. Depends on the clock too. Like, all right. We got another one because we, we love answering questions here. And by the way, really good questions. I'm going to just say, where's Elliot? Elliot, good job today. Like, we really like your questions. Please I do. like your questions. All right. So Elliot, you, you, you can do it again. Nobody wants to pick the questions. There's like 400 questions you guys send in. Every two weeks. And he's been really good about not giving them just this question. Uh, there was a time when we would have two-page questions. We had to have a chat. <laughs> no two-page questions. Like, and I'm probably the worst. I had to talk to myself. I was probably the worst offender. I'd be like, wow, this is a really good one. It's like six pages. All right. Please, please, please discuss the pros and cons of borrowing from my life insurance policy to purchase real estate. Is any part of the interest I would pay on this loan tax deductible? Yeah. I'm going to give you the second part. The interest is certainly deductible on, on the property you're purchasing. It may not be much if it's an insurance loan, but. But here's the thing. It, it's like, what? what's the pros? I have access to a policy, usually it's whole life or uh, index universal life, variable universal life. Different policies have different uh, ways of treating the loan. Some call it a wash. Hey, you don't make money on the money that's in the account, but you don't pay interest either. Like it's a zero. Mm-hmm. So you're like, okay, I, no harm, no foul. I'm just not making money on it, but I'm not paying interest. Uh, they'd still probably assess you an interest. So you could write that off. But then 
there's income of that same amount in the policy, which puts you at a zero, but you'd still get a deduction. Some of them, it's, hey, this is the rate that we're going to use. It might be something like a, I know LIBOR is not around anymore, but it might be a LIBOR plus or prime plus uh, 1% or whatever it is, right? And, or it's, here's a baseline that we use, some calculation that they use for the interest rate. So maybe you're paying 5% interest. You could be making 20% on the money in that policy, you know, unless it's whole life. Like, did they say this is they just didn't life? Say. They didn't say. So like, let's say it's whole life. You're probably making six or 7%. And maybe they're charging you 5% of the policy. So you're still making money and you're getting to write that off. This is really important. If I do a HELOC, if I borrow against my uh, insurance, if I borrow from a related entity, that money, the interest that I'm paying is investment interest expense. It's going on my Schedule E and it is going to be deductible against my rental income. So I'm still going to be writing it off. So it's absolutely 100% deductible to you. I don't see a lot of cons on borrowing from my life insurance policy. I, I have one thing and it's not really a con, but it's a it's what I've seen as a common misconception of by default on my HELOC or my bank loan or something, that's going to generate income to me. Mm-hmm. If I default on my life insurance loan, that, that it's already secured and it's not secured by the real estate. There's a thing. I borrow against my life insurance. It's not secured with the investment property I bought. It's secured by sure. my life. All yeah. I got to do is die someday. Hopefully I can put, I can do that part right. Right. Like, oh, I couldn't do anything right. The only thing I could do right was die and pay off my policy. That's great. Right. The, the death benefit is going to pay that back and it's not taxable. So it's a great, it's actually really a good thing. Yeah. To borrow against. Again, I don't care whether it's a HELOC. I'm going to write off the investment expense on my Schedule E, even though you might be thinking, hey, no, I have to write off my mortgage interest on my Schedule A. That's only your personal mortgage. That's on your personal residence that was used for acquisition indebtedness when you bought it or fixed it up. Here, you're taking money, you're securing it with your home and you're investing in something else. I can write that interest off as investment expense. People don't always realize that and they leave some money on the table. We want to make sure you do not leave that money on the table because it's ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. We want to make sure money. And and something Elliot and I were talking about on this very subject is you take a line of equity on your home to buy another property. Mm -hmm. The interest you pay on that doesn't go on your Schedule A. It goes on that property. Yeah, it goes on your Schedule A for that property, which is money in your pocket. I don't know why more people don't do that. Uh, You can do it against the security back line of credit. You can have a... You can have a, a stock account and you go there and they'll, they'll oftentimes loan you up to, I always say, don't go over 50%, but they'll, they'll, they'll loan you for 70, 80% on some of these up to 90%, depending on what it is. And it's at a lower rate than you would get if you went to a real estate lender. And it's like, why aren't you taking the money that is available to you right here? Or you could borrow against your 401k. You could, there's, or, you know, go find a, a friend's IRA where they're self-directed and they let them stake it and pay, and pay interest. At the end of the day, it's not the source that matters. Correct. It's what it's used for. And if you're using it for rental real estate, you're going to be using that interest and deducting it against, as you're going to be using it as a deduction regardless. Very exciting. Anything else on that one? Nope. Woo! All right, let's get this one. How do I offset passive losses? As soon as I see passive losses, I'm like, all right, somebody knows what they're talking about. How do I offset passive losses other than increasing rents and paying off debt? Do I partner with someone who's generating a lot of passive income by a property that has generated a ton of income for the year? What can I do before the end of the year so I can use this year's taxes? Hmm. All right, going to that very last question is kind of the key. At this time in the year, there is very little you can do. If I go in 
and buy into Toby's partnership who has a ton of passive income. I only get that portion from now until the end of the year, not yep. what he's earned previously. Ooh, right. You're looking around for passive income from your other sources. So if I have passive losses and I'm like, shoot, yeah, increase your rents to market rents. If mm-hmm. that's what, if you're, if you're doing under market, yes, go find businesses that create passive income that I can offset. So I always use the pizza shop, Toby's pizza shop. Jeff has passive uh, losses and he needs some passive income. He could partner as a silent partner who does not materially participate in my pizza shop. And when I pay him, let's say we make $100,000 a year, we split it 50-50, he gets $50,000. He may not be paying any tax on that because he has passive losses from his rental properties. Me, I'm working in the pizza shop. I'm going to have active ordinary income, so it sucks. I don't get to do the same thing. But there's two types of passive income and passive losses. There's two two types of income sources. There's businesses in which you do not materially participate Mm -hmm. and rents rental income and not just any rental income, long-term rental income, which is, is, you know, more than seven days, right? Now, there is one other thing you can do before the end of the year, and that is sell one of your businesses or properties that has all this passive loss. Well, he has passive losses, right? So he'd he'd have to sell it with passive gain. Well, yes. Well, the passive losses that would be freed up upon. Oh, if he has, so if he has passive losses on a property. Yes. And you said, geez, we're not getting to use it. You could sell that property. Correct. And it would release that passive loss to be used against that property's gain and then carry it over and use it on other. Correct. And going back to what you were just saying was Mm -hmm. if he has a gain on that property, that's also passive and he can apply that against. Yeah. He he has other passive losses. Any other passive losses. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes we're playing a game. We're looking at things and say, which one has loss, which has a gain. Is there a tax reason to do something? Maybe. Um, but then here's the last thing I'll say on this. If you have excess passive losses, they don't go away. You don't lose them. No. So it's not like you're on a timeline like, oh, shoot, I need to get some passive income or I lose it. You just carry it forward into the into future years. We'll, we'll still use it. Hey, if you like this stuff, guys, I know I already mentioned this, but we got a four-day live event here. We're going to do another one. I think it's in March. Nice. I think we're looking in Texas to do a live four-day event, four days of having to hang out with lawyers and investors and real estate investors and stock market people. Four-day event here in Vegas, uh, starting on Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm speaking on Thursday, probably on Saturday, probably on Sunday. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Who all's going? Hey, guys, give me a thumbs up if you're going to this event. Some of you guys might be some. Yes, yeah, so there we go. We got some people in the chat, but, but give me a thumbs up. There's a few folks, like two thumbs. There we go. There's some more. All right. So there's a few more. All right. So a bunch of you guys are coming. Come hang out with us in Vegas. Actually, there's a whole bunch. There we go. And then come to a, you know, hang out with us next year. But we also have the free one day events. I just had Brent Nagy, who's a really cool client from a long time. He's a real estate investor and he taught, uh, he did Clint's portion really? on uh, last Thursday. He did a very good job. He's a pilot, a very successful real estate investor. And he's really wanted to to talk on this because he said it's had such a big impact on his business. He says, I'd like to teach it. So we're like, okay, come on out, hang out with us. It, it is a lot of fun and you learn a lot of important stuff. Yeah, you learn about land trusts, LLCs, corporations, Wyoming statutory trusts, living trust, personal uh, residence trusts, uh, all the different types of tax treatments, uh, escort versus sole proprietor, depreciation, accelerated depreciation, cost segregation. We're hitting a lot of different topics. Then we go into legacy planning, 
what is a living trust? How is it used? What are your options? Three options that you have, four different ways that you can distribute in state. There's a there's a lot of stuff that we go over in that one day. It's pretty action packed, and sometimes it goes slightly over, but for the most part, it's a nine to four type endeavor. Take a day, learn a lot of good stuff. All right, I am a licensed contractor working full time in my 100% owned construction company. I am a salaried employee, so I do not have a punch card to track my worked hours. Am I a real estate professional for tax purposes? So I'm assuming it's a C or S corporation. And since you're 100% like owner, this does not make you a real estate professional, but it goes towards what we call the first test of being a real estate professional, meaning you had 750, more, 750 or more hours in a real estate business. Yeah, so it's 469 of the code and it's where they did the passive losses. So they said, and this is actually like 1986, they were sick of tax shelters. And so they basically oh, said, yeah. yeah, you're right. We're gonna create this new category called passive income. Passive losses, paper losses, can only be used against passive income unless you're a real estate professional, unless you're an active participant in real estate making under 100,000 and then it's 25,000. So they, they, they carved off some exceptions. The reason they did the exception is because the year following the, this new law, construction owners said, this is not fair. Develop, developers said, this is not fair. We need those losses because we get treated like crap because we have inventory instead of depreciable mm -hmm. assets. So when we are buying our houses, we need losses to not be passive. We need them to be ordinary losses that I can use to offset the income in my business because I'm treated so unfairly under the tax code. And they won. They actually said yes. And they changed the law to basically create those exceptions, the real estate professionals and the uh, uh, active participant. Active participants, the easiest one to qualify for, but it phases out between 100,000 and 150,000. So if you're somebody who makes less than 150,000, there's a good chance you don't have to be a real estate professional to write off a bunch of your losses. If you know, you could be writing off up to $25,000 in a year just for hiring your own manager. That's what it is. Do you, are you ultimately in control of that property? You're an active participant. Real estate professional, there's two big tests. And Jeff just said prong one, prong two. Prong one is I work in the realm of real estate trades or businesses. I spend 750 hours a year at least in those businesses. And it's more than 50% of my personal service time. If it's a joint married filing joint, so it's a joint taxpayer, one spouse has to qualify. Here we have a licensed contractor. They own their own business. The threshold is you have to own at least 5% of that business for the time to count. So under this one, if he's working full-time, he just has to have some reasonable tracking. It might say, I worked full-time. This is the only, time, you know, this is my only business. The IRS would probably buy that if they could see, you know, keep, a, keep some sort of calendar. Like, hey, I work 40 hours a week. You don't have to have a punch clock, but you have to have some something that shows this is what I was doing. Like you could be looking at all the jobs. You'd be looking at the income. Best thing to do is to put it in a calendar so that you don't even have that issue. But if you hit the 750 hours and it's more than 50%, so so long as in this construction company, you're working full-time, you don't have another job, you're going to be more than 50%. Yep. Then we go to test number two. Test number two is, did I materially participate on my rental properties? And in that case, what do we do usually do? We aggregate them? We aggregate them. It, if you have more than one property, you really need to aggregate them. Which means we treat them as one activity. And then the material participation test, again, there's seven of them. Let's see if I can actually do seven. Da, da, da. 
and uh, there's and you, you're going to have to qualify under one of those. The the three that again that we pay attention to is you're the only one doing the work, substantially doing all the activities, which is possible to do if you have a property manager. Prong number two is you and a spouse do over a hundred hours together, and nobody else spends more than a hundred hours in your properties. Prong number three is, uh, and you just have to meet one of them is five hundred hours or more. So like you could you could qualify together. So if you're a real estate contractor and you're working on your properties, you would actually track that time. And I understand you're not doing a punch card, but you'd want to track that time yeah. because if the IRS comes in, they're going to want to know, all right, did you meet the material participation test? You could use it the time that you work on your properties towards that test. Otherwise, we're really looking at you and your spouse and what did you get? What did you actually do on your rental properties? Payroll records might suffice, but I would want to have that number of hours work in there, even if it says 40 hours every week. We just don't see a lot of challenges on this mm-hmm. because they know the the accountants. I, I should say we don't see it probably because it's all of our returns are uh, professional taxpayer prepared. Do we ever, have you ever seen one? Like this last year, did you see any? I didn't see any, no. We do over 10,000 returns a year and I, we didn't see any. Like they're, they're not really looking at the real estate professionals if there's an accountant because the accountant is the one who's certifying it, signing it and all that good stuff. They're kind of deferring. What they're really going to do is is look at the person who's probably taken a big old loss. They know that person has W-2 income. It looks like they have another job. There's no way they're spending more than 50% of their time on real estate trades or businesses. They're just writing it off. But um, 20-something years we've been doing this, Jeff, for about 50. Just kidding. Uh, you know, one, one, one of the difficulties I've seen is um, two unrelated non-married people will be in a partnership. Mm-hmm. And they both want to be real estate professional. And we have to explain to them, well, you both have to meet the 500 hour requirement yep. for you both be real estate professional. Yep. 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 Uh, which becomes a little more difficult. Remember prong one, active businesses, development, redevelopment, construction, real estate agent, all this stuff. It doesn't have to be anything to do with your properties. Right. You have to do, you have to be in the real estate trader business, 750 hours more than 50% of your time. And it doesn't have to be the same. Like this person could be doing a construction company, be a real estate agent and be a developer. And they spend 300 hours on each and you add them up, it's 900 hours. Great, you qualify. But then you have to materially participate on your rental properties. And it's per property, unless you decide to treat them as one activity called aggregation. So you have to aggregate your properties. The court cases that I've seen that are against taxpayers, almost always, because somebody didn't aggregate, and then the then the, the the tax judge has to follow the law, and they're looking at it's going it's per property. You chose not to aggregate, and then they yell at their accountant. The accountant had no idea that was even an issue. It's not their fault. There's like let's just be real. The number of accountants that do real estate returns is very very low, very very low. All right, next question: Can I create a four hundred one k for my real estate investment business? Does it cause a problem if my salary job provides me with a four hundred one k? Not at all. I mean, you can certainly start a 401k in your business. The amount you you personally can contribute is still limited to what it was for your 401k with your employer. So if you do 10,000 here, the employee deferral portion. The employee deferral. You can't do 10,000 in your business and 30,000 in the other business. And what that is is there's the employer can contribute up to 25% of your salary. They can always do that. You can have 10 401ks with different employers, but they're limited in what they can contribute up to 25%. And then each plan has a limit of 66,000 or if you're, if you're over 50, then there's a makeup, I think a 7,500. 
the employee can contribute up to 23,500 or whatever, whatever it is in the particular year. 23,000, or is it 22,500? Is it 2022? 20, 20, I know the total is $30,000 yes, for catch up. Yeah, so I think it's 22,500. But you can contribute that. The employer employee can put that into their employee side. And that is not per plan. That is for the employee. So yeah. if I put $20,000 in this employer's plan and then I put 20 in over here, I've over contributed, right? I can only put in up to 22,500 plus any other amounts, but the employers can, can contribute to each plan up to the 66,000. And what plan A, the employer contributes has nothing to do with plan, what plan B. Yeah. But then I want to touch on one other thing. It says yeah. 401k for my real estate investment business, depending on what type of business you have in order to contribute to a 401k, you have to have active business. It can't be passive. So if you have a rents and you, you make $10,000 a year in rents, you can't contribute that into a 401k. Right. That's it, that's passive income. It needs to be ordinary income, active ordinary income. There is a way to turn that in. You need a management corporation. That's why you use an SRC corp or a LLC tax as an SRC corp and manage your properties. Then you could put that money into the 401k. Just remember that 401ks, they're deductible for federal income taxes and state income taxes, but not for employment taxes. So no matter what you're going to be paying, old age, disability, and survivors in Medicare. So actually there is time if you have an active trader business mm -hmm. that has substantial cash, you could, could and should pay yourself a substantial salary now. You have until 2024, sometime in 2024 to set up your 401k and make that employer contribution. Yeah, so the employer contribution, uh, since I think it was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, it was mm -hmm. the Secure Act that gave us the- uh, Oh, it's the Secure Act. So they basically said, hey, the employer can set it up and contribute all the way up until they file their tax return plus extensions. So if you work for an escort, for example, it could be next, what is it, September mm -hmm. 15th, and they could make the contribution of 25% of your salary in there. So it's like, yeah, the employer could still do that. You can still do a defined benefit plan if you want to really ramp it up. I've had clients this last year that were putting in $70,000, $80,000 towards the filing deadline because they wanted to lower their tax bill for the previous year. Yes, you could do those things. There's all sorts of little tricks to those. But to answer this question is, can I create a 401k for my real estate business? Yes. Even if you can't contribute to it, you could roll over your IRAs and do other things. But if you want to contribute to it, you need to have active ordinary income. It does not cause a problem with your salary job with the exclusion of you have one amount that you can max that you could hit for the year as an employee putting portions into your employee contribution plans. So you just can't exceed that. So Jeff could go up to 30,000. I go up to 30,000. You're under 50. You're up to 22.5. I think that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So you look at whatever the year is, use that number. Wait, how do you know I could go up to 30? Uh, because you, you old. All right. Here's, uh, I think it's the last one. Yep. So here's the last question. Is there an age limit for hiring our kids to work in our family business? Question mark. We have a six-year-old and a 13-year-old. Oh my God, six-year-old kids working. What is this, a work camp? Yeah, anyway, can uh, we do that? No, I wouldn't hire the 13-year-old. That's when they start getting a little mouthy and- Put them to work. <laughs> uh, yes, you can absolutely do that. However, you have to have tasks assigned to them that they're doing. You have to be paying them for something. So you can't just say, oh yeah, my six-year-old is on my payroll, even though he's been in school the whole time. and. Uh, 
sweeping the floor. We talk about modeling for the cute little ones. There's a court case with the IRS where it was a nine-year-old. And the question was, what's a reasonable amount that they could be compensated? And it was whatever, in that case, it was Screen Actor Guild. Mm. It was uh, modeling and being an actor for marketing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not like they look at it and say, oh, you're a six-year-old, you can't get paid. What they always say is, what's the task you're doing and what is the marketplace for it? And then before you say, well, the Department of Labor is going to come crack me, crack down on me. No, the labor laws is 14 and 16 years, plus states have different ones. But it's, it, that's not the case when it's your child. So if it's the parent-owned business, then you can put these kids to work early. If they're under 18, you don't have to withhold employee taxes. So if this is a sole proprietorship, disregarded LLC, if this is a real estate business uh, partnership, partnership, yeah, and you are paying them, then you do not have to do old age disability and survivors of Medicare. And it gets better if you pay them less than whatever the standard deduction is. So this year it's 13850 They pay zero tax. They don't have to file a tax return. They can put a good chunk of that. Let's say they want to put, I forget what the limit is this year in IRAs, but like 6500 I think. I can put that amount of money into a Roth IRA. I never paid tax on it and I'll never pay tax again on its growth or any of the income that comes out of that. So you could set your kids up. Just think about the six-year-old. Let's say they were able to do $5,000 worth of work. That's 5,000 bucks that goes into a Roth IRA. I don't know. I don't even know how many times that would compound before they hit retirement age, but they're going to be very well off if you put that just in SPY or some some index fund. 13-year-old, same thing. They have so long. Like Just think about it. They retire at 70. So you have, what, 57 years of compounding before they even touch the money? $1 billion. Yeah. So he says, I own a construction company. My son is 11 and flies the company drone to get updated aerial photos every week of the projects. How much can I pay him? I'd call up a professional drone company, usually photographers. They do these the drones and figure out how much they would charge. Yeah, I'd call Delta and see how much they're paying their pilots. <laughs> yeah, no, that's horrible, Jeff. No, <laughs> no. No, that's it. No. Oh. Right. Now, don't listen to Jeff. What you do is you go and you find, hey, what is the uh, what is the, the cost of getting something comparable? Uh, if your kids are over 18 or if it's parents or siblings that you want to put to work, it's still like if you're covering their expense, you don't get any deduction. If I can move that money to their tax bracket, uh, quite often I'm saving some a substantial amount of money. You just have employment taxes but it counts towards their quarters uh, that they, to where they get actually benefit. So they may be getting that back at some point, assuming that there's still social security when they, when they retire. And, and what you're talking about with the drone is, is perfect mm-hmm. for a situation like this. Not fun. Like, again, I always just think of the parents that are working their butts off. Here's a six and a 13 year old, you know, like I'm saving up for college and all this stuff or whatever it is. Trade school, go to Tyler Sassy and go to uh, welding school. But uh, if, it's, that's on my YouTube channel. I'll show you that in a second. But let's just say that you're, you're saving up and you're like, hey, I'm really worried about these guys. I want to make sure that they are set. Instead of you paying for something, like if Jeff pays for it, after it comes out of his bracket, if he's paying $10,000 for a kid to go to school, it's probably costing him closer to 15000 mm-hmm. after employment taxes and his tax bracket to make the $10,000. Like you, again, we earn money, we pay tax, we spend what's left. If we can get it to a kid who's that tax is zero, you make 10,000, you spend 10,000, you're great. Even better yet is, hey, I'm okay to take a little bit of a tax hit on my money. I want that deduction now. 
and I'm going to put it aside for their well-being. And then think about this. Let's say that they you're putting it aside because you want them to go to college or because you want to get them into real estate investing. You want them to have a nice amount that's sitting there. You do this over the years. You make, let's say it's $5,000 a year and you do this for the 16, the six-year-old and they're making 5,000 bucks a year and they're doing that for what, 12 years. You got 60 grand sitting in there plus all the compounding. So maybe it's a hundred because uh, that's over a long period of time. If they need to get the 60 back out, it's tax-free. They can always take the amount that you put in and they can take it out and use it if they need to. Can't loan it out in a, in a in an IRA, but you certainly can take out those. So if there's an emergency or if they're going to go to school or whatnot, the amount that it's grown stays in there. Just leave it. But the amount that they put in, they can take that back out and then let the rest of it ride. There's so much more flexibility here than those 529 plans and all that other well, stuff there. I was going to say something about that because before I wouldn't have said this, but now you put in 6500 into that Roth IRA, you still got 6500 left. I would be tossing that into the 529 plan because now those 529 plans can be converted later into Roth IRAs. Oh yeah, so you could do it. So you're still building up, you still have that tax-free I still like gains. Oh, I, I wouldn't, for these guys, I would yeah. definitely be putting it in the Roth. That's what I would be doing. And yes, you can hire your six and 13-year-olds. So the answer to this question is, is there an age limit? No. If it's under 18, there's no employment tax. Over 18, there's employment taxes, but you still can pay something to anybody who's who's working. And by the way, you could do this with a nonprofit too. I push people towards these things quite often because I like it as a family legacy. You have an, you got something that you're doing that you really care about. Maybe it's housing, affordable housing, veterans housing, recovery housing, women housing, this, that, you know, just fill in the blank if it's doing, it, even Section 8 housing qualifies as nonprofit. It's out of your estate. Nobody can take it from you. If, you know, so if you get sued by, you know, ton of people, they still can't take it, but it doesn't get probated. Something happens to you, your kids work for it. They don't take that money and buy a Ferrari. They actually have to work and they make a nice salary, but they're working on something that you created. It's a nice legacy tool. I just like those. If you like this type of information, I'm going to throw this back out at you. Boom, there's the YouTube channel. I mentioned Tyler Sassy. Uh, if you guys weren't on in the very beginning, let's talk about Tyler because he's really cool. He has a welding school. Came on, we did a, a nice uh, interview. Go check it out because uh, if you know anybody who's thinking about going to college and paying $200,000 for basket weaving 101, this might be a better thing for them. There's all sorts of tools where they don't even, you know, it's not even going to come out of their pocket. There's other groups that so takes about six months to get their certification. And right now we need lots. I think it was fifteen, twenty thousand dollars shy. It's a huge amount of people that were that were short in the trades. They're making good money, and he's a good dude. So again, we all know somebody that uh, might be better off going in and, and doing some welding rather than uh, jump in and do the basket weaving thing, or just maybe they just don't know what they're going to do. But if you like tax strategies, different types of ways to make money, by all means, jump in there. It's uh, absolutely free. Subscribe, like it, all that stuff. Good stuff. Uh, I think there's over 800 videos or something like that. No, over 700 videos. Sorry, there's over 700 videos sitting in my YouTube channel with a lot of them are questions and answers from uh, these types of Tax Tuesdays. And then I already mentioned this a million times. I'll just say it one last time. Join us for a Tax and AP event. They're free. One day events. And then the ones that you actually pay for are live events. They're four days. They're less than a grand. And uh, I think substantially less. We're always doing different types of deals. So be on the lookout for those. You can come in and learn how to make money on day one, learn how to keep it on day two, three, four, 
Um, and it's really, really fun because you're around a bunch of investors and you get to hang out with us and Jeff and, and me, maybe me. You going to come to one? I hadn't planned on it, but I, I may have to stop down there. It's just, we'll be sleeping in. If you have questions in the meantime, because we do these every other week, email Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. We answer your questions. We also pull the, the questions that we use during these events out of that. And uh, if, if anything else, just go check out Anderson Advisors. We, we put these on not because we're trying to get anything, but because we think it's really important to educate people on taxes because there's a lot of bad information and there's a lot of bad folks out there. You don't have to pay tax. Yeah. All right. Let's not get everybody in trouble. There's a, there's a legal way to do things right. You're probably seeing that there's a lot of uh, loopholes, whatever you want to call them. There's laws written to incentivize certain behavior and there's incentives given to people like people that make dividends, people that do real estate. And there's lots of different ways to get great results out of your tax planning if you spend a little bit of time learning about them. So that's what we do is we're just like, hey, can we teach this? Will people uh, listen? And if they will, we'll keep teaching it. And we have hundreds of people that come on every every other Tuesday, plus thousands of people that that watch the videos. We have tens of thousands at this point that are that are grabbing this 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 information. I just don't feel like we have to charge for it. I think it's a great thing if people are just getting smarter. And that's it, Jeffro. Anything? No. All right, you got it covered. Then, guys, we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.